Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Julie Gill, owner, mediator, and coach at Families First Mediation. As you will hear from our interview, which I enjoyed very much, Julie has loads of experience and spark, and she offers a broad range of services, which will soon include family arbitration. But the focus of our discussion was family mediation, a process to which we are both very committed as a viable alternative to family court. Not only is Julie's experience as family mediator extensive, she is also an active contributor to family dispute resolution as a field, and she works actively on promoting FDR, on developing it, and on educating the public about it. Julie is a member of Family Mediation Canada and the ADR Institute of Ontario. She also sits on the board of directors of the Family Dispute Resolution Institute of Ontario, FIDRIO. If you're interested in learning more about Julie, I encourage you to visit her very informative website, which is familiesfirstmediation.com. As usual, I will leave a link in the show notes. I know you will enjoy our interview and Julie's open, engaged, and engaging style, both as a communicator and mediator. Julie, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. You're most welcome. I look forward to our discussion. My listeners already know a little bit about you from my introduction, but I find that what others say about us is seldom what we would actually say about ourselves if asked. And I always find that so interesting, the way we see and describe ourselves, who we are, what we do. Give us a short bio, please, from your perspective, so we have a chance to get to know you a little better and maybe talk about how you became involved with family mediation in the first place. So, so life is a wonderful teacher. 
in my case. So I went through a, let's say, less than amicable divorce many years ago, and I turned that that experience into my career. Um, I knew going through it and then coming out of it, thank gosh, at the other end, um, I knew there had to be a better way than the court process, which is the one I was forced through. It just didn't make any sense. It wasn't focused on my children. And it was it was just an additional level of stress that I did not need already, you know, while I was already going through a separation. So I started with Families First Mediation. And then as my practice grew and I got to work with more clients, I kind of I saw other needs that weren't being met. So then I started Separation Coach and I just kept learning and changing and evolving. I noticed financials were a big, a big thing for people that they weren't really they weren't getting their needs met. So I went and did more training and did my certified financial divorce analyst. Then I became a certified elder mediator, which is I, I think I'm one of about 20 people in Canada with this designation. And now as of June 1st, I will be expanding again into a mediation, arbitration and arbitration. So I'm just kind of constantly evolving and saying, how can I help clients? What are their needs? What are they telling me? Um, and then lining it up with kind of my own life experience and my skills. What a fantastic broad menu. You are available based on your skills so far and what you're planning to do. You're able to help so many people. That's that's great to hear. You are a fellow family mediator. So I am thrilled to have an opportunity to explore with you this process to which we are clearly both committed and which we believe is a real, viable realistic option for resolving family disputes arising out of a separation. I find many Ontarians still know very little about family mediation. Some don't even know it's an option for them. Why do you think that is the case, this lack of public awareness about family mediation? And what can we mediators do to spread the word? Well, I think things like your podcast are certainly the right way to go about it. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's one of the best kept secrets and I'm not, I'm truly not sure why that is. You know, I'm going into 12 years doing this in private practice and I don't know how much the landscape has truly changed. I think we're very siloed as mediators. We don't kind of have a singular voice to help out with advocacy and marketing um, and, and creating awareness. I think there's there's a real lack of, networking and partnering within the mediator community itself, right? It kind of feels like a, you know, every man for themselves kind of thing. And I think I think we miss a lot of opportunities that way to, to grow mediation. I think having no direct path into mediation makes it kind of this this weird little black hole that people don't understand, right? Should you be a lawyer to be a mediator? Should you be a social worker? Should you have financial background? How did you come through it? I mean, I came from um, a large financial institution where I was an assistant vice president of business intelligence, right? Not the normal path that you would take <laughs> to get into this line. And I think some of that kind of reduces our credibility and not having, not being regulated, I, I think, makes us this unknown commodity that nobody really knows what to do with. And that includes clients. I think there is um, there's that, that, that reflex initially to just, I need a lawyer right? That kind of historical momentum that is, I'm separated, I need a lawyer. And everybody shares their negative stories. So you go, oh, I need a lawyer, but I need a good lawyer. Or I need a shark. Or I need this. You know, nobody's telling their good stories about mediation to help spread the word. They're not like, oh, we went to a mediator. 
and we had this wonderful experience, we settled it and we can now talk. So without those stories being shared, I think that limits our exposure. I think there are still many lawyers out there that do not support mediation, that do not refer to mediation, and probably are not incredibly exposed or aware of or knowledgeable about mediation and when that when mediators can can help you know i think i'm hoping the new divorce act change that that came in will will help that to some extent um and i think there are there are few team approaches which i really like you know collaborative kind of was the first the first foray i guess into something that says look you know we can have a team of professionals and i don't think it really hit the mark personally um, but, you know, knowing when to use a mediator for what things and when to, to have the lawyers involved or financial experts or parenting experts, just having that team approach so that you can find something that really works for that family, a best fit for that family. I think those are kind of the things that are missing. And as mediators, we tend not to be the best people at marketing. Let's face it, it's not really our skill. And I don't think we do a good enough job in marketing ourselves. You know, as you started speaking, Julie, I had this instinct to grab my pen and start writing headings for topics I wanted to respond to. You raised so many issues. My goodness, if we dove into uh, the last two minutes, we wouldn't get through uh, what I was hoping to get through today. Perhaps if you enjoy yourself today, you might come back and we can get in more depth into some of the points you raised, you know, uh, lawyer approaches and people's approaches to the idea of sitting across each other uh, at a table. Uh, many people still consider settlement discussions a sign of weakness, uh, but, but there are lots of other uh, headings that I could see uh, on a piece of paper if I started writing of, of areas you and I could cover together. So that's very, very helpful information. Let's assume we have listeners today who are interested in family mediation. And I think after hearing you, they would be, but they don't really know much about it. Why don't we help them out with a basic definition, some explanation of the process? If you could help me with that, Julie, that would be terrific. I can certainly try. And I love, as you mentioned before, I love every opportunity to talk about this. I am passionate about this, as are you, and any opportunity I can talk about this, I am happy to accept. Um, so really, you're looking at your mediator as your guide through the separation process. So they should know the steps involved, because you should not, right? And this is kind of the support that you're paying for. They should know the steps involved. They should kind of have a good working knowledge of the law. Um, and they're really there to help you have balanced conversations and create a plan. In a nutshell, that's what their job is, Right. As a family participating in mediation, you know, the mediation is going to provide you with a framework to make decisions that work for your family, right? It's going to give you a voice, which is brilliant, which you lose in, you know, in the court process. Having a voice is really not what that process is about. Although people want to go to court to have their voices heard, that's not really what that what happens there. It allows you to tailor the process and the plan to meet your unique needs for your family. Right. So instead of the court process, which is kind of one size fits all and it forces families into their process, the mediation process is designed around your family with that being the focus. So really, it can be anything that you work with the mediator to create that works, which I think is just brilliant. I don't know if that answered your question, so, but I think in a nutshell, that's kind of what it is. Uh, absolutely. And uh, what I was going to introduce is the idea that in mediation, in family mediation, 
the parties can address any issue arising out of the separation, the financial issues, and you already touched on this, and the kids. And for me, and I'm sure for you, kids matter the most. So I thought we would focus today primarily on kids. But I want to come back to a point that you raised and flesh it out a bit. And that is the difference between the way in which issues are addressed in family mediation versus the court. So in family mediation, borrowing your words, parents actually get a chance to work together on crafting their children's futures with the mediator as a guide. I love the way you describe the role of the mediator. And that is different than what happens if they unfortunately, have to take their parenting dispute to the court, correct? They're a judge. A stranger has to make decisions for them. And that is sometimes necessary in some cases. And I say that as a family law lawyer. But when I talk about mediation, I always tell people that court should not be the default. It should never be the default. There should be every effort made to resolve a family dispute in a way other than going to court. So I would love to hear your comments about this point, Julie. About kind of the the court versus mediation for families? Yes. It was interesting when I was was thinking about how, how to respond to a question like this, you know, and I, again, going into arbitration, I totally, I support, I empathize, and I understand that all couples are not going to be able to mediate, right? That there's going to have to be some other process um, that can help families move forward and make and make decisions. But in, in you know, you and I in mo- most cases do not settle that way. Most cases are going to settle outside of the courtroom. But I was thinking, even the language changes. So when I talk about clients, I talk about families, right? Because even if they're going to be in two separate homes, they are still families. They don't stop being parents. They don't stop being families. They just look different. So all through any kind of alternate dispute or appropriate dispute resolution, they're families. The minute they're in court, they're now cases and they're individuals. And that's just the couple. The couples are individuals. The children are not, you know, best interests of the children. That is not a focus of the court. It really can't be the focus of the court because it's not set up that way. It is set up with, you know, each individual discussing their positions. They are now a case. They're not a family anymore. And it stops being about the best interest of the family. So I think the whole approach, the language, how you go into it is so very different, right? And even, you know, switching from like a mediation into an arbitration, so much more formal, but still less formal than the court process, which I think is just really powerful. But there's something I I can, I share with a lot of my clients, because this was one of those things going through my, my separation. Um, again, didn't go well, but I have this incredibly powerful story that will stay with me for the rest of my life. And it was like 18 years ago. So my son at the time, um, was five, he was the oldest and he was very upset by the separation and I was trying not to talk to him about it. And one day I just kind of, and it'd been weeks and weeks and weeks, and I could just kind of see him turning into himself and he really wasn't, he wasn't his usual self. And I said, buddy, like, what's up? And, and he starts crying and he says, what's a judge? And I said, pardon? He said, well, I don't understand. Daddy had told me that that because mommy and daddy were fighting, a judge would decide where I live. And I don't know what a judge is. And I don't know who this judge is. Do I have to talk to this judge? This was my five-year-old, right? So, I mean, yes, the 
starting problem was that my ex had talked to him. But this poor five-year-old, just there's this random judge that he doesn't know what it is or who it is and why this person was making decisions and it wasn't his parents. And I thought that there has to be a better way than this. Like this, this just should not be what we are putting our children through. My child should never know who a judge is or what a judge is at that age. And to me, that just kind of highlights the problem with the process. So speaking as both a family mediator and a family law lawyer, I agree with you completely that there is a better way. And part of our job is to educate more people about family mediation. But as speaking as a family law lawyer, I have a kinder and gentler view of the system, the legal system. And you and I maybe can have a further discussion, you as a family mediator and me as a family law lawyer. Family law judges work very hard. I see it in court when I have to be there. And they actually do take kids' best interest into account, hopefully most of the time. But the idea, you're right, that a five-year-old and your child would think that they would be speaking to a judge because of a comment his father made is, is very upsetting. And the occasions on which a family court judge actually speaks to a five-year-old are very, very, very few and far between. It's a very rare occurrence. I know you know that you're nodding your head. So I adopt 99% of your comments, Julie. I agree that there is a better way, and that's what you and I do, and that's what you and I are trying to educate the public about and spread the word about this process, which is so much more constructive and participatory for the parents, right? It gives them a sense of participation in the settlement they craft. Right. And I truly, I mean, I work with some great family law lawyers and I know judges do their very best to use best interests of the, the children. I mean, it's the law, right? They're following it. But, but their starting position is literally, their starting point is two individuals stating their opinion and their positions and that's what they've got to judge it on. It's, you know, it's the information and the context they're getting to make those decisions, I, I think is so limiting even for them, for their ability to do it really well or to help the family, right? They can only do with what can do with what they have and they don't get enough to make good decisions all the time. That's a very good point. The amount of time that's available to a judge to deal with an individual family, the amount of information, evidence that's available to them. You know, lots of my family law clients come to the process believing that they will get to have a dialogue with the judge, that they will get to explain their position, tell them how they feel, tell the other side how they feel. And the opportunities for that in family court are very limited for a number of important and legitimate reasons. For me, and I'm sure you agree, one of the strengths of mediation is an opportunity to truly dialogue, right? Somebody we know crafted this phrase. It's about having uncomfortable discussions in a safe place, in a safe context, right? Where people, where, you, where the mediator really gets to peel the onion and see what is at the root of it and pull it out and have the parties address it in appropriate structured circumstances. 
Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. It's just the way the process is set up. You know, there, there's no winning and, and lawyers and judges are going to do the best they can. But the process is not set up for it to go, you know, extremely well, let's face it. <laughs> yes. So my listeners already know that I love hypotheticals because I, I think they give people a chance to see how what we talk about applies to real life. So I've set up a hypothetical, no surprise here, a couple, Sam and Sally, with two kids, Adam, 12, and Alana, 8. And they separated three months ago, Julie, and they come to you for help with their parenting issues. And they can already tell they have a difference of approach to how much time the kids will spend with each of them. But they they also know that there are lots of other issues related to the kids they need to address, but they don't really know what those issues are. So as you said, you're going to be their guide. I love that. I love that description. So how would you approach a classic case like this, Julie, from a practical, hands-on perspective? Right. So while, while every family is unique, some of the starting positions are quite common, right? <laughs> so that difference of opinion on um, parenting time is, is, is one of those things that you're, you're right. It's a classic case. It's quite common. Um, and again, go back to that best interest of the children. You know, it's not just a catchphrase. It's a priority. It's, it's the focus. It's the law. So I always tell my clients, like, it's okay to have a different idea of what the best interests are and how to get there. Like, that's okay. Right. Like, you know, you weren't always going to agree to everything when you were together. Now you're not agreeing to things. And there's just less there's less desire to kind of give in like you may have when you were still together. Right. Or to defer to one parent to make certain decisions. Now that kind of doesn't happen. That goodwill doesn't really happen anymore. And that's OK. But as long as they stay focused on the kids that I am, I always say I am absolutely hopeful. And I trust that you guys can do this. I kind of want to be their cheerleader right off the bat. I understand you're in different places now. And if you weren't, you wouldn't need me. So that's okay. You're in the right place, right? So if it's, you know, finding out really what each parent can do, right? Because there's kind of that starting position where they talk about percentages, which I think is odd. When they talk about parenting time, well, I need 50-50 or I need 60-40. And, you know, being professionals, we know usually what goes into that. Um, or what's behind that, because nobody talks about how percentage that they parented, right, when they're together. All of a sudden, that's a big issue. But if we kind of take that out and we just say, what are each of you capable of doing? What has it looked like with your jobs and your commitments? What are you capable of doing now? How does that fit in with the best interests of the kids? What does this look like for the kids? What will it look like for the kids going forward? And it's one of those, if you kind of start eliminating impossibles, you can start to figure out what is possible, right? So having the child overnight, when you leave for work at four in the morning, how is that going to work? I appreciate and I love that you really want to see your child as much as you can, but maybe 50-50 is not the right solution because you can't do it. So let's talk about what each of you can do and how we can maximize that time for the children with each of you and figure out where that leaves us. And it's just kind of reframing that question, you know, or the questions related to that. And honestly, to me, it's being a cheerleader. Like, you can do this. I know you're stuck and I know you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel right now. But we'll get there because really you have kids and we don't have a choice. We will get there because <laughs> we have to. So to me, that's kind of that's yeah, my I approach. Think, I think the cheerleader role is quite important. 
I like that you've introduced this into into the discussion, Julie. And so from your perspective, where do lawyers fit into all of this, if at all? Um, I've always said, you know, the, the easy answer is before, during, and after, or before, during, or after. In my practice, it comes down to three things with lawyer, either inclusion or exclusion, for that matter, right? Because some clients want them to be excluded. They do not. They've heard stories. They don't want any lawyers anywhere near this. And other ones are afraid to mediate without their lawyer there because they need that. So the first thing for me is lawyers should be included or excluded as needed or wanted by the clients. I'm tailoring this process with them. If they want their lawyers in the room and we're having a five-way meeting, great. If they want them available by phone, terrific. We'll take extra breaks so that they can phone in and, and check some things. Whatever they want, I will tailor that process to make sure that they feel comfortable and that it's balanced, right? So I don't want a lawyer on one side in the room and not on the other, but that's my process to manage. As needed, the lawyers as needed to resolve a dispute, right? So sometimes they just need that legal support or that legal answer or direction or something clarified with a lawyer to move an issue. So sometimes we'll have, it'll just be one issue that we'll need the lawyers on the phone. Or we'll need them to send us a mediation brief or, or somehow give us input that we can talk about in the mediation, right? Whether they participate or not. Sometimes I will say, get your lawyer to send an email so that I know you haven't misunderstood what your lawyer has shared with you. Because <laughs> I know enough, you know, I know enough about the law to be dangerous, I always say. Um, I know when something doesn't sound right, doesn't sm pass a smell test. And, and then, you know, the third one is as needed to make informed decisions. So if I get, you know, if I keep hearing legal positions, well, you know, my lawyer says, and I don't know who their lawyer is, but it's a friend of a friend of a friend that's told them this was the law. Again, I know enough to be dangerous. I know enough when something is not right. And, you know, if they don't understand, if they can't make informed decisions because they don't understand the entitlements and obligations, then I think that's my role to say, I think we need a break. I think you need some legal information or advice on this, um, because that is not my understanding of the law, and I don't want to see you be to the left of the law, right? So I think those are the three things. So as needed by the clients, as needed to resolve a dispute, or as needed to make informed decisions for me, and any which way we can make that work for the client, I'm totally on side with. I, I agree with all that. That's a, a good way of putting it. And Julie, are your mediations open or closed? And maybe you can help my listeners understand what the difference is between the two. So the majority of mine are closed, which means, you know, totally confidential. What happens in mediation stays in mediation. I always like to say it's like Vegas. What happens in Vegas? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in mediation stays in mediation unless I send an email. So sometimes the parties will agree to something. And before we get to the, the end of the mediation or the memo of understanding phase, I will send out an email going, hey, you guys have agreed to this right? Like, I want to put this on paper now. You've agreed to this. So whether it's just to show them that they've done it, or they're going to be making a decision during mediation. And I kind of want to, everybody knows what this is. I want to do that CYA piece that says, you know, you've intentionally made this decision. You're not accidentally setting status quo. You're not doing anything that's going to, that's going to hurt going forward should mediation not work. So with, uh, anything that comes out of mediation, if I send the clients an email with any steps or things like that, they're free to share. It's their email at that point. So it's closed with the exception of if I'm going to put anything out to them, they can share it. Open, I don't do open mediations. 
I do what I call partially open. So if they have lawyers, and a lot of my clients don't have lawyers, they haven't retained them anyways. They're kind of in the background sometimes, um, or they have somebody they can use on a, on a fee-for-service basis. I'll do a partially open if they've got lawyers to say, I will do a summary at the end, right? If it doesn't work out, I will do a summary that kind of says, here's the things they did agree on, because I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? I want them to, to go with what they've agreed to. There's no reason to litigate or continue to fight about that. So let me do a summary of you've agreed to parenting time and decision making, whatever it is. These are the issues that you're considering. And here's the one that we got stuck on. Right. Focus your lawyers. I'm always trying to set them up for success, whatever it looks like. So if I can put something out that helps them kind of direct their lawyers and the money that they're going to spend on these lawyers <laughs> to continue having discussions, at least I've got them focused and they're going to get the best bang for their legal buck. So I kind of have a weird, you know, partially open and it very clearly says this is for your lawyer's use only and I will name the lawyers. And that's what it's used for. Right. To help them with their next step. So I kind of have closed or partially open, but I don't think I don't think in my 12 years I've done an open mediation, a fully open mediation. Those are great insights into the difference between the two. All my mediations are closed and there's a, a reason for that similar to yours that we can explore perhaps on another episode. And so what about expectations as to timing? I always try to give my clients when I'm a family law lawyer and also as a mediator, reasonable expectations, uh, of course, that's impossible to predict because you might spend a day on what an objective listener might consider to be a small issue, but it's a big issue to the parties. So you may think that you're going to cover three issues in a session, but you end up covering one half of an issue in a session. So share your thoughts with us, please, about timing expectations. Is it several shorter sessions? Generally, is it one long session? What do you think? The answer is yes. <laughs> or the, the, <laughs> the answer is yes. Or the most perfect answer, it depends. Because, yes. I, because I'm designing this process with my clients, a lot of it will come out of um, the one-on-ones, right? So the initial confidential one-on-ones I have with each of my clients is going to give me some input so that I can share that information with them, right? So where we think we may get stuck, what do you think is going to go well, kind of get a feel for the clients and the issues. So normally, I mean, normally I kind of put it out there and say, it's going to be two parenting meetings planned for two hours each. You know, I think when we push into three hours and, and on, it becomes unmanageable and not as productive for clients. And I think bullying and manipulation starts to happen at that point. People get tired and they just want to push issues or drop issues that they felt very strongly about. And now they're tired and they just can't be bothered. They just want to agree to things. And I don't think they're lasting. So I don't particularly personally don't really like really, really long mediations, you know, and then depending on the financials, how many how many of those I think it will take based on what I hear. But if they say, look, somebody is, you know, traveling a lot. They're only in town now. We're good. You know, we would rather just push through and have an eight hour mediation. Then we're going to have an eight hour mediation. You know, if that's what they want, I'm just going to raise any concerns or things that I have seen. And, you know, sometimes they will say, yeah, I get that. Let's make sure we stop for an hour lunch break. Or do you want me to bring lunch in? Like, how would this work? Here's my concerns. Do what you want with them. At the end of the day, this is your process. I will do my very best to manage it. So, you know, and sometimes it's just, it's just one issue. It's not a full 
you know, separation. It's one issue and it's time sensitive. So we don't really have a choice other than, you know, getting them in at seven in the morning or late at night or weekends, or it's going to go until we make a decision because <laughs> we have to. It really, it really depends. I think anything and everything is possible as far as timing. And, and I want to be respectful of their budget too, if that's a concern, right? So, you know, I, I want to say, you know, if it took 10 hours, is that okay? Split between the two of you, does this, is this okay? Right, does this structure make sense? If not, can you do this homework? Can you do this with a family member and agree on this? Can you prepare this, which will let, you know, shorten our mediation session because money is, is obviously very important to everybody. So honestly, it's whatever, I, whatever that family needs and wants, I will do my very best to make, to make work, which includes the length of sessions, and even that, you know, how long their mediation lasts. I've had clients that have been like one eight day, eight, eight day, eight hour mediation. And I've had others that I've had for two years, you know, whatever works for them. Yeah, I would summarize what you said with the word flexibility, right? The flexibility has to be there because no two cases are alike, but you also are exercising your own flexibility to accommodate a particular case, the issues at the pace at which they can afford to carry on with the mediation. So that's terrific. A great segue, something you said at the end of that piece, a great segue to my next question, which is how a parent might prepare for family mediation. Do you have any tips, Julie, uh, perhaps bearing in mind that the more homework they do ahead of time, the more effective the, the dialogue will be perhaps a little bit sooner? What are your thoughts on this question? I, I tend to do um, more high conflict, quite angry clients, honestly. Um, that just seems to be where, where I've found my little niche. So I actually like them having less conversations without me, um, specifically on parenting. I'm also worried on the financial side, because I think there's a lot more homework they can do. Um, I worry about their ability to, to have these conversations and them to go well when I'm not around, if, if they are a bit higher conflict. And I worry about them getting stuck in their positions and saying things that they may not be able to get back out of, right, on the parenting side. So I really, really, really prefer to manage that process for them. I think it goes better. Um, that's been my experience. So I think as far as advice, one has to be to choose the right mediator, right? So someone you feel comfortable with that if that mediator says, you know, that that mediator asks a question, you're not going to take offense to it. It's just a question, right? Or that you feel open to sharing your concerns or things that you want and why you want them. And talking about your kids is such a, a personal thing. You know, so I think choosing that right mediator is, is really one of the best pieces of advice that I can give to families, right? The process has to be the best fit for them. So does the person. And being open to possibilities. And that's why I think the more homework they do, I mean, if they're in agreement, great. Do all the homework. Tell me what your parenting plan is and I'll fill in the gaps that you may not have thought about. Um, but if they have a difference of opinion, just be open to the possibilities. So part of, the, you know, going through this myself, that fear of the unknown it's terrible, right? Although you may think your ex is not going to be the one to, to do this or that or the other thing or try and take your kids and all the things that sometimes rationally, sometimes irrationally you think may happen. You know, I think it's important that somebody helps you have these conversations. So being open to the possibility that things may change. So the way things always have been may not 
be how it should go going forward and, and not getting stuck in that. Um, that maybe somebody like I had, I had, um, my husband was a stay at home dad and I went out and, and, uh, I had the career and I made the money as they say. And it looked very different when we had these conversations. Cause he was like, well, I've been home with the kids that will continue. And it, it's really hard to have that conversation to say, well, I'm a parent too. And I would really like to see them and spend time and have them know me as well. So I understand that hadn't been our decision. That was not our plan. This was not how we thought our life was going to look and what, you know, what we had planned for. And it's changing is a very difficult conversation to have. Right. So I like it when, you know, they just, they're open. They've got the right person, which I think is helpful. And they're open to the fact that, you know, or the possibility that things may change and really not get stuck on anything before they come in. Other than that, parents are superheroes for their kids. Right on a parenting, there's not a lot to prepare for. You know your you know your kids. You know their needs. You know what your family looks like. You know commitments everybody has. You know, you have all the knowledge that you need to come into a parenting meeting. Just be comfortable with who it is. And honestly, the biggest thing: wear comfortable clothes, bring a drink, bring a snack, whatever you need to be comfortable. If you two need support people, grandparents, let's bring them in. So long as you're in agreement. But you know. Just be open is, is really the best advice I think I could probably give people in preparing for parenting. Great advice. The only other thing I would add, and sometimes I say to parents who come in, think ahead of time and perhaps even write down for yourself the kinds of topics that topics related to the kids that are important to you. So headings like where will they live? Who will make decisions about their school? You know, we can put labels on those if we need to, or we don't have to. But it's, you know, the residential arrangements, the decision making. What happens if one of them moves, right? You know, how will that uh, work out? If they are sharing the kids, if one of the parents moves far away, what will happen to that arrangement? So there is nothing wrong from my perspective with parents coming into a mediation not having thought through those issues ahead of time. But sometimes when I'm approached by parents with a question about how might I best prepare, I suggest that they think about some topics they want to get out on the table and address. Yeah. But yeah. you, you I, raised I, a lot of points that were very valid. Yeah. I just, I just have a different thing. It's just worked for me over the years. Right. And I love seeing them agree to things. Right. Like even if we say, what are the really important things you want to make sure we talk about today? Like, I know what I need. I know what needs to go in your parenting plan. Right. What are the things you want to get done today's meeting? And even just seeing them agree to that. I mean, the, the mediation is, you know, the first opportunity, even just agreeing to participate in mediation is the first opportunity they have to jointly agree on something going forward. To me, is super powerful. So anytime I get them to even agree on a topic in a mediation is just that much more powerful and helps them get through the more stickier conversations where they don't necessarily agree. Right. So if they've agreed on, here's the topics. Yeah. These are the most important five things to both of us. Perfect. That's where we're starting. So even just seeing them do that versus them doing it in the background on their own and coming to the table in one party, which there tends to be a, and I use primary is probably not the right word, but somebody that was more responsible for making parenting decisions, right. That just, somehow defaulted in the relationship 
And if one person, and that will usually be the person that comes in really prepared, and the other person defers. And I don't want that to happen because that's not the model going forward. So that that's kind of why I just switch it up, right? I, I really want them doing as much joint decision making. And some of them are easy. Like, honestly, can you agree on your child's birthday? And it's funny how often that does not happen. And it starts with a laugh. And I'm like, that's it. I am not asking you about dates anymore. <laughs> From now on, you don't get to answer a date question anymore because you don't have your children. And they just laugh and it kind of breathes, you know, people take a breath and they go, all right, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe we can talk. <laughs> and I'm sure you do the same thing. I'm sure we do the same thing. When they actually agree on things, we point it out to them. We say, look, you know, 10 minutes into the mediation and you've already agreed on three points. There were no brainers. So there's actually more uh, room for further agreement than you thought, because they were both coming thinking, we have completely different views of everything related to the kids, particularly in high conflict cases. And yet, I mean, it's part of the mediator skill. Let's not kid ourselves to strategically position that discussion uh, in a way that hopefully enables the parents to agree early on to build goodwill and some momentum. So let's give ourselves a pat on the back about that. But but it, you know, genuinely and sincerely, it's so wonderful to see two parents agree on things related to their kids and see that they actually agree. It's It builds goodwill. And I think that's very important going forward. Yeah, I, I think it's brilliant. It is just, it, it's why, you know, most of us do this work. Watching them do that and be able to, you know, that going back to the cheerleader, go, look at you guys, three decisions right off the bat, but you didn't think you could do that when you came in here. So to me, the planning for parenting is all on our side. It's all on the professional side. I need to plan this parenting meeting so that I get them some of those wins early on, right? So I, I think it's, it's us that has to do the planning for those parenting meetings versus the parents. That's where I think the pre-session interviews, gathering information, the mediator gathering information before meeting with both parents. So, you know, in your case and mine, it helps us plan the sessions better, make them more effective, make them more strategic, ultimately more helpful to the parents, getting them to a resolution uh, in the most cost-effective and time-effective way. Julie, you have provided uh, my listeners with a lot of useful information, and I really enjoyed our chat. And now I'd like to get into another topic. And uh, for those listeners who have heard (laughs) other episodes, I do this with all my guests. It's a device I borrowed from one of my favorite podcasts, and that is Alan Alda's Clear and Vivid. At the end of his interviews, he asks seven questions about roughly about communications. But Mine are not about that. Mine are about food. So, Julie, I'm going to ask you three questions about food. Are you ready? Oh, I am ready. (laughs) Sounds like this is going to be fun. So what is your favorite (laughs) food or cuisine, Julie? Japanese and sushi. That is my go-to, hands down. You are a girl after my own heart. I love Asian food. I love Asian food. And I said to my husband the other day how much I miss sushi. We haven't done any takeout since the pandemic started. So no sushi in the last uh, 14 months. It's hard to believe. Yeah. And it's something I won't Uh, make for myself. I'm not even going to try it. Like that is a I'm going out and getting sushi. Like it's an event, right? (laughs) I agree. I am with you 100%. 
There you go. And what about it? What about it is special? I know what about it is special for me, but what about you? Um, I really love seafood. It tends to be quite seafood heavy, which I love. I love the flavors. I think it is, you know, more healthy than some of the, my other alternatives <laughs> that I can can. <laughs> not so much deep fried stuff, which is good. I stay away from that. I just, I don't know. I fell in love with it again. I think it's something that, you know, I can't make it home as well. I wouldn't even try. So it's a treat. You know, it's just something I really enjoy. I love the taste of it. I love the atmosphere. I do. I love, you know, a lot about the culture and, and that. And, you know, Asian food in general, I'm super, super excited about. But Japanese is up at top. I just discovered online a store in Japan, and there is a rather large package coming to me by sea uh, from Japan. And they said because of the pandemic, they don't deliver in any other way. So they said perhaps six to eight weeks, but I'm very, very excited about it. There is some food in the package, but also other items from Japan. And I love Japanese culture too. Julie, what about a favorite restaurant? I'm interested to hear that. So I couldn't decide between two. <laughs> so I'm giving you two instead of one. So one is Great. Um, Acme, the Acme Oyster Bar in New Orleans is just fantastic. So oysters, you know, there's a theme. Um, and Scob, so the Siesta Key Oyster Bar in Siesta Key, Sarasota, Florida. I have spent many, many hours at, at Scob, and it's just, you know, it's one of my happy places. So both of those are my happy places that anytime I am anywhere near Sarasota or I'm anywhere near New Orleans, I am going to those two places. <laughs> Well, the close to Sarasota occasion, my husband and I definitely have to try because we go to Longboat Key, which is yeah. on the other side of Sarasota every winter. So uh, that will just be a short drive in the other direction by the sounds of it. I must, must look that up. Right, in the, right in the village. Yes, the Key Village has a lot of good restaurants. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> Julie, it's always uh, such a welcome opportunity to speak with a family mediator because I really am keen on spreading the word about family mediation to Ontarians and perhaps others. We have listeners not just uh, from Ontario, but from across Canada and some from the United States as well. Some of these concepts translate across borders. Many of them do. The concept of mediation and family mediation is an international concept. And now you're getting into arbitration, and that's a wonderful thing, and we can talk about it some other time, but also a very useful and important alternative to court for all the reasons we discussed earlier. So I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate a gift of your time, which is a precious gift these days. And I had fun. I hope you did too. Please come back. I absolutely will. You just need to invite me. I am here, always ready to talk about this stuff. <laughs> That's terrific, Julie. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now. <laughs>